Uh, so last weekend, we took our teens away, our middle schoolers, up to camp. And it was good. It was so good. You know, if you look at the stats, it's really easy to lose hope when you look at what our teens are facing. After two decades of things getting better in the field of mental health for teenagers over the last seven years, listen to this, mental health issues have shot up 170% just in the last eight years with, uh, with teens. Depression, anxiety, loneliness, stress, epidemic levels. More kids are attempting suicide at younger ages than ever before. More kids are experiencing hunger and homelessness right here in the suburbs than ever before. Drugs are getting deadlier. And devices are exposing young people today to things that we once could lock the doors to at night. As a church, we can't just close our eyes to that, can we? We can't just close our eyes, pretend it's going to go away, pretend that, oh, this is all going to self-correct. We can't do that. If we care for our kids, we have to do things differently. Well, when it comes to teens, I believe one of the most important things you can do is give them a chance to get away. Give them a chance to do like we did last weekend, to unplug from all those things that are contributing to what we're seeing and to give them a chance to experience something very different, that life that our soul longs for most. So we went to work. And our work started with words. Work always starts with words, at least meaningful work does. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Our words matter. Our words matter. We used words to cast a vision of what could be. We used words to gather and unite teams around a vision. We used words to let our teens know we love them. We love them and we're here to help. We used words to draft goals and to clarify values. We used words to ensure that everybody knew, here's what the expectations are. And here's what happens if you don't follow those expectations, if you don't play by the rules. We use words to drop contracts. We use words to confirm logistics so that our plans wouldn't just be ideals. We lined up food. We lined up housing. We lined up transportation so that everybody could get there safely. And there was enough food to eat. There was enough places for people to sleep. We use words to clarify costs so we could actually pay for our ideas. And we use words to let our middle schoolers know Here's how you sign up. Here's how this works. Here's how you participate. Words matter. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Words create worlds. Isn't that true? Words create worlds. You know, and I look at the world we were able to create. And thanks to all of you. I'm looking out and see so many people were there this weekend helping out. Here's the evaluations. Here's the world we were able to create last weekend front page here. This sixth grader thanked us for all of the great leaders and the amazing people. This eighth grader right here said, it was awesome. Nothing needs to be changed. They said for an eighth grader to say it, that's amazing. This seventh grader said, uh, oh, the one improvement to the camp, the only one they put, make it longer. They said, love it. Uh, And many of them said that. This next one here, the thing I wanted to highlight was how under, uh, what are the things you appreciated most about the fall retreat? Communion communion service. Many of them said that. The next one, what I want to highlight there is that we asked on a scale of one to 10, how much you want to come back next year? 10 is high. They gave us a million. (laughs) They gave us a million. And then this next camper, they gave us a number that was one followed by 19 zeros. And then get this, 
We said, what would you, improvements you recommend? They said, nothing. Best trip of my life. Best trip of my life. In the face of all these stats, in, in a world that is trending a very different, di- different direction, we use words to create a different world. To create a different world. And one of the many things that made this trip work is as we're using our words, we listen to one another. We actually listen to one another. Emmanuel listened to Camp Covenant Pines. Camp Covenant Pines listened to Emmanuel. I listened to my staff. My staff listened to me. We listened to volunteers. Volunteers listened to us. Campers and parents listened to leaders. Leaders listened to camper and parents. Here's a real tiny example of one of the things that came out of listening. Um, one of the things I wanted to do this weekend was to do this. We call them our spontaneous melodramas. It was, this one was based on Mark chapter 5 and, and this, this story that Jesus told that involved villagers. And so I met with the team and I'm like, how can we make this really, really good? And they said, well, villagers, you got, you got to use Minecraft villagers. I have no idea what a Minecraft villager is. But they said, no, trust us on this. If you do this, if you create a Minecraft villager, they're going to love it. So this is one of the masks we created. This is evidently a Minecraft villager. And so we had these in the skits. They, they wore these things. And they were right. They were right. This just making a box with some colored duct tape ended up getting them more engaged than it would have been otherwise. We listened to different voices and all these voices came together. And instead of us fighting, we listened to one another around shared goals. And we created something really, really special. Really, really special. Words create worlds. Last or weekend, the weekend I'm just describing, we used words that brought life, that brought healing, and brought hope to a world that was trending a very different direction. See where I'm going with this? Two weeks ago, we started a conversation about immigration, about refugees. As a church, we can't just close our eyes to what's going on. We can't. Nor should we expect that the broken systems that brought us here will somehow self-correct. In week one of our series, we unsolated, we call it unsolating, we unsolated the scriptures, and when we did... We saw the Bible is filled with commands, commands to respond with compassion to the strangers within our borders. Last week, we unsolated the crisis. And when we did, we saw millions and millions of people are affected by this. Well, this week and now in the weeks that follow, it's time to get to work. And if we're going to talk about work, we start with words. We start with words. It is easy to find examples of people who are not contributing to the conversation in helpful ways. Can I get an amen to that? You just turn on any device, you're going to find people who are not contributing in positive ways. And what was fascinating for me as we did our homework here leading up to the service, and we look back at history, that's been the case since the beginning of our country. I found this quote. This quote is from the 1700s. That I'm about to show you. And evidently this person was not a fan of all those Germans. All those Germans who were immigrating to Pennsylvania. Real quote from the 1700s. Let's put it up on the screens. Why should immigrants establish their language and manners to the exclusion of ours? Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens? 
who will shortly be so numerous as to change us instead of our anglifying them. And they'll never adopt our language or our customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. Because those Germans, their complexion is so different than us English people. What in the world? Does anyone know who this quote came from? Came from? Right here, let's put on the screen. Recognize this guy? Ben Franklin. Circa 1751. Ben, the German hater Franklin. <laughs> Immigration. Go back to the founding of our nation. Go back to the founding of pretty much any nation. Immigration has always been, it will always be polarizing. In part, because people aren't listening to one another. They aren't listening to one another. They come from different perspectives, different life experiences. What Minecraft mask moments are we missing? Are we missing? Because we're not listening to the different voices and trying to glean from different perspectives. As we were preparing for this series, I can't remember if I told you the story yet, but we met with a, a number of pastors, and one of them was from Nicaragua. And this pastor from Nicaragua explained why he's here in the United States, and he's here in the United States because he got a phone call from one of his friends who works in the government. And his friend said, you have to leave now because I'm looking at a list. It is right in front of me. Your name is on the list. The soldiers are coming to kill you. You have less than 24 hours to get out of the country. And this was a credible threat. How do I know it's a credible threat? Because they showed up at his church. They took his interpreter, and after the interpreter said, I don't know where he is, they put the interpreter in front of the interpreter's family, and they shot and killed him. This is a voice that matters. This is a voice we need to listen to. It is an important part of this conversation. There are people that have no choice but to flee where they are. But then you also discover things like this, that the average wait time in a refugee camp, does anyone know the average wait time? 17 years. 17 years. So here are people in a refugee camp saying, I've been here 17 years. I understand my story is like his. I understand you want to get him into the country now, but what about us? Those are important voices in the conversation too. How do we do all this in a way that's fair? In that same meeting, we met with a man that we met from the man from Nicaragua. We also met a guy who was born in the Dominican Republic. He came here with his parents. He didn't have a choice in this. He came here with his parents. All of them are undocumented. He's grown up here. He's now an adult man. This is the only home he's ever known. What does that mean? That's an important voice in this conversation. And so is the voice of our friends who just got their citizenship this year. After years and years and years of trying to navigate all those complexities. So why should one person get it and not the other? But you see how this gets really hard and really complex? Those are important voices too. In just a few minutes, we're going to see some stats that remind us the vast, the overwhelming majority of undocumented individuals living in the United States, they are loving, caring, hardworking people. They're people who are making choices that we would make, most of us would make if we were in their situation. These are important voices, as is the voice of a father who several years ago was walking on a pier with his daughter and a shot rang out. And she died from that gunshot womb who came from a man who had been deported five times and was now in the country illegally. 
That's an important voice too. This is a complicated conversation. And we haven't even talked about how do you pay for it? How do you make this? This is a complicated conversation. So let's talk today about how we can use our words to create a better world. At least in our little corner of it. In our little corner of it, how can we use better words to create a better world? As a church, what we do when it comes to words is we anchor to the scriptures. We anchor to the scriptures. We trust it. We honor it. We revere it. We order our life around it. Well, last summer, we spent 11 weeks in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. Genesis is the foundation for everything. Let me give you an example of that with this here today. Including the power of words. So if you have your Bible with you, let's open up to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love for you to to go home with one free today. Each and every week we keep a stack there uh, in the back at that table. We'd love for you to take one home as a gift to you. Here we go. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Look what it says about words. How powerful they are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God what? Said. And God said, let there be light. And then what happened? There was light. And God saw the light was what? It was good. It was good. God spoke, something happened, and it was good. By the word of the Lord, says the psalmist, the heavens were made, and the heavens were good. Look at how that theme of God said and it was good is repeated over and over and over again in Genesis 1. Look at this. God said and it was good. God said and it was good. God said it was good. God said and it was good. God said it was good. God said it was good. good. All that's in chapter 1. The prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 50, verses 10 through 11, that God's word will go out of his mouth and it will bring life and it will bring healing and it'll bring hope. Not just to Israel, but to the whole creation. Okay, let's link that that we've just been talking about to these words. These are also in Genesis chapter 1. It's a mashed down version of verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Male and female, he created them. And behold, people were what? That creation was very good. It was very good. We're image bearers of God. And we have the capacity to use our words to bring life. We have the capacity to use our words to bring healing. We have the capacity to bring hope. Well, in Genesis, we also learned that we have the capacity to follow the example of a serpent who was in the garden. This summer, we learned that his words, they lead us to become not more like God, like he promised. We become more unlike God. His words are misleading. His words contribute to making our world even more broken, disordered, chaotic than it already was. After thousands of years of humanity proving we can't turn things out around by ourselves, God sent a savior. Now I want to show you something. I want to show you, we saw how Genesis opens. Take a look at how the book of John opens. Let's go there. John chapter 1, verses 1 
through 4. Let's take a look at this. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Roughly the same amount of space that, uh, that, that Genesis opens up with. Look at this. In the beginning. Does that sound familiar at all? In the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And <laughs> that's right, Rick. The Word was with God. He was and was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. See any parallels here between how Genesis opens and how this opens up? As the Gospel of John continues, John makes it clear that word is who? The word is Jesus. But before he spells all that out, John refers to Jesus as the eternal word that was with God and was God. It says all things were made through him. In him was life. He was this light shining in the darkness. When you think of this language, it's like, how do you get your head around that? I love how commentary, uh, the commentary that came from N.T. Wright, he said this about that opening. He says, John knows perfectly well that he's making language go beyond what's normally possible. But who made him do it? Jesus. There, there, he had to describe what was happening. And to be accurate, he had to stretch language beyond the ways we normally stretch language. The term we translate as the word is the Greek word logos. Greek philosophers, they use this term to describe an impersonal principle of reason that gave order to the universe. Those philosophers claimed that, okay, we humans, we experience the cosmos, the cosmos, this universe, but there's this abstract force beyond our sight that brings order and harmony to this universe. John saying... This isn't about a principle. It's a person. And you can know him. You can know him. This thing that you, you, you sense is beyond the world that we see, he stepped into it. You can know him. Whew. Let's jump ahead to verse 14, where it starts to make, bring this to greater clarity. The word became what? Flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That Greek word we translate here as dwelt is a word that's used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the tabernacle of God. So in other words, the word became flesh and it tabernacled among us. This tabernacle where God's presence was present. God's presence was present among us in Jesus. And we see this. Jesus' words had power. Power over nature. Power over blindness. Power over death. As disciples of Jesus then, we have access not only to his words. We can be tabernacles of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Can you imagine what might happen if we took God up on that and we allowed him to tabernacle in us? 
Let's talk about that specifically when it comes to immigration and refugees. Let's a place to write this down. Let's start here. Imagine a world, the world, that we could create. Imagine this. Imagine the world we could create in, if we engaged in conversations that were respectful. Let's start there and let me unpack this just a little bit. In all our conversations, let's do our best with God's help to use language that affirms Genesis. Language that affirms that every person who has ever taken a breath, every person who's ever been conceived, they bear the image of who? Of God. Every person. Every person bears the image of God. It's important for the record. It is important to distinguish between legal behaviors and illegal behaviors. As we do that, as we do that, it is also important to affirm the dignity of every individual. Every individual, as we do. This is especially true when, again, people today are doing things that many of our ancestors did. And when people today are doing many things that we would likely try to do if we were in their situation. So to have compassion and to bestow that dignity that already exists on people, but through our words. Here's an example of one author's attempt to provide some helpful guidance in this area. This author contrasts dehumanizing behaviors with the kind of behaviors that Jesus affirmed through his parable about the Good Samaritan. So here are three dehumanizing behaviors that he would steer us away from this author. He said, you want to dehumanize people? Then absorb media that speaks unkindly and unfairly about foreigners. Consume that. Number two, he says this. He says, let a slur go uncorrected. Number three, he says, fail to see God's image in people. These are examples of what he would say are dehumanizing behaviors. And then on the other side of things, he said, here are three good Samaritan behaviors. He said, number one, take time to see a person as a person. Number two, take time to feel their circumstance. Number three, seek a tangible way to connect or to give or to share a meal. Well, one of the best ways to show respect is to listen, to just listen. Our conversations become far more productive when we seek to understand before we try to be understood. Can I get an amen to that? Oh, can I also get a commitment that we are going to strive to be the best listeners in the room? Can we do that? All right, raise your right hand. I will do my best to be the best listener in the room. Thank you. I'll try to do the same. It's hard when you're speaking, but. All right, that's number one on this list. Here's number two. Number two, make sure what you say when you do speak, make sure it's accurate. Make sure it's accurate. We try our best here all the time. Say, fact check us, fact check us, fact check us. Make sure what you say is accurate. I recently saw a screenshot of an online conversation that went like this. Person number one said in their little bubble, how expensive is it to visit Spain? Person number two said, it depends. If you live there, it's free. You know? Right? <laughs> A number of sources I looked at, they talked about how what people do is we flatten out the truth. We flatten out the truth. What's super expensive to go to Spain? Well, it can be. It can be. We flatten the truth, meaning we oversimplify complex things. When I was in Juarez in July, I sat down with a number of people. One of them was my friend Karen. 
And I said, Karen, um, can you give me your take on detention centers? Because right then in July, there was so much in the news that was being said about detention centers. And you listen to one source, and you, you heard one thing, and you listened to another source. And I said, no, it's like this. And, and I said, tell me, tell me. Well, she knows a number of counselors, people who have been in different detention centers, on the U.S. side and in the U.S. side. And she said, boy, there are, there are some people, they're experiencing conditions that are so much better than the conditions they left. And she also said this. She said, there are also situations that are so bad that the counselors need counseling when they come out of it. So it's complicated. It's complicated. If you want to gain a broader understanding of some of just some of these things, you know, we're, we, we're not, can't, we can't become experts in this, you know, in 10 years, right? But, but if you want at least a better, more informed conversation, stop by that resource table. Becca has done an amazing job of sifting through so many resources. And she has facts sheets that you can look at. We have books that we've screened. We have videos you can watch. We have so many great resources that can help us with whatever time you can invest, become a little bit better informed so that we don't flatten the truth more than we already do. So let me just quickly, in a couple minutes here, let me give you a couple examples of things that you're going to find as you dig deeper. One of them is this. Immigrant and refugee aren't synonyms. This is really important. Don't flatten the conversation by, by jumping, lumping these together. Immigrant is a very broad term. It is used to describe people who live in a new country. And so that can be very, very different for different people. You could be fleeing poverty or violence, but a number of people are here in the United States because they were recruited. They were recruited because of their expertise to come to the United States. Many other people are here because they got married to a citizen and, and they are trying to start a family in the same country. You know, it, an immigrant, the, the backgrounds can be so wide because it's such a broad word. The pathway for an immigrant to become a citizen, it usually starts with a visa. They obtain permission to work or study in the United States, and then the visa opens the door to residency, which can open the door to citizenship. Well, one of the big eye-openers for me personally, one that Jason commented on last week, one that we'll try to say quite a bit because the, the language is expressing something very different in, in the, the conversation that's happening out there, it is nearly impossible for someone who is poor to immigrate into the United States. That's one of the things that just has become clearer and clearer the more people we talk. In fact, to get a visa, you generally have to prove you are so well established in your country that you wouldn't want to leave it, generally. As we pointed already in this series, this phrase, tell them to get in line, where's the line? Where's the line? Here's, here's an example of what we're talking about. This is from a book called Welcome a Stranger. Now, Though we might encourage undocumented immigrant, immigrants to wait their turn in line, there is often no line they can stand in. They repeatedly line up at the U.S. consulate. They pay a substantial fee, apply for a visa, but for the majority, especially those without substantial education or financial resources, they will leave the consulate disappointed, finding there's not even a line in which to wait. Okay, that's just a tiny bit about immigrants. Now, refugees, that is a category of immigrants who have fled their homes, but it's very specific circumstances. To be classified as refugee, it's very specific. Here's one of the attempts at trying to um, 
condense down what is also a complicated uh, set of, of criteria. Uh, I found this one in one of the books I was looking at. Under both U.S. and international law, a refugee is specifically defined as a person who is both of these things. One, outside his or her country of nationality or last habitual residence. And number two, is unable or unwilling to return to that country because of persecution or well-founded fear of persecution on account of one or more of the following grounds. Race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. And the scope of this is huge. Well, in 2017, the United States welcomed about 110,000 refugees. And you listen to that number and you say, wow, that's a lot. When you start to dig deeper, you realize it, it isn't as big a number as perhaps we might think. Take a look at this. Even if this country were to welcome how many? 200,000 refugees, it would be what percent of the world's refugees? So remember this number. 200,000 would be what percent of the world's refugees? One. The United States just passed legislation to lower the number. Some of you know about this. It did not make the headlines. It should have been all over the news. The number got lowered to who knows what it is. 18,000. That's how many we're going to let in in a year. 18,000. What percentage of 1% is that? It is one of the things that people say with this, they say, well, that's a good thing because we don't want terrorists sneaking in with the refugees. Be, in fact, I'm not going to say be careful. Please do not talk like that because here are the facts. Let's take a look at this. With more than 3 million refugees admitted through the U.S. refugee resettlement program since the 70s, since the 70s, none has ever committed an act of terrorism within the United States. Why is that? Because refugee is a very specific category. To get through the refugee screening process is extremely robust. What's the average time spent in a refugee camp? 17 years. If you get to the front of the, that line, there's now 18 months, 18 months on average of a vetting process where you're vetted through multiple interviews, multiple background checks. It's common sense. Why would a terrorist go through that? When you could be one of the 70 million, 70 million people who enter the United States every year through other means. So if you're looking for a safe way to vet people, refugees is one of the most carefully vetted means by which we have right now to vet folks if you're concerned about security. Now, on the non-refugee sides of things, this was also an eye-opener. I came across this statistic in my research. An undocumented, an undocumented immigrant from Latin America is more likely to be a what than a murderer? <laughs> a pastor. A pastor. Okay, so there's a few definitions. There's a few facts that can maybe help us unflatten our conversations about national security. Again, just adding more voices to the mix. Let's shift our minute for our focus for just a minute or two on the economy, on the economy. In a flattened conversation where we're just making it oversimplified, people claim that immigrants are taking jobs from citizens and undocumented immigrants are receiving benefits without paying for them. With a show of hands, how many know it's more complicated than that? It is more complicated than that. There are a host of studies that indicate many jobs that are being filled are jobs that citizens aren't applying for and there's many cases where a company like Microsoft, Intel, Motorola 
they have to recruit because they're struggling to find workers that have the advanced degrees and skills to fill their positions. A recent study profiled 87 U.S. startups that are valued at $1 billion or more and that employ an average of 760 people. More than half of those startups were either founded or co-founded by immigrants. Here's a summary of the kind of information that is readily available. It is readily available, readily available for those who want to have a more informed conversation about the economy and, and, and how immigration affects that. This is from a book called Seeking Refuge, and then they footnote all of these sources. While many Americans believe that refugees and immigrants are more broadly a drain on the economy, economists almost universally reach a different conclusion. The average American-born worker actually sees their wages positively impacted by the presence of immigrants. Economists also find that immigration, immigrants positively impact the fiscal well-being of the nation that receives them, paying more in taxes than they receive in benefits. If anything, as I was talking to people who are on the front lines of all this, if anything, when I talked to people, they said, yeah, Chris, follow the money. Follow the money. And when you follow the money, here's the kind of things that you uncover. This is from uh, Welcome the Stranger. And again, they footnoted all of these. As we have already explained, most immigrants are paying taxes. They're taken out of their payroll checks for Social Security, Medicare, and income tax, as well as sales tax, property taxes. Undocumented immigrants have heavily subsidized Social Security without being able to benefit from it. Look at this. In 2010 alone, undocumented immigrants paid an estimated $12 billion more in payroll taxes into Social Security trust funds than they were qualified to receive in benefits. A study found that Arizona immigrants generate $2.4 billion. This is Arizona. This is a border state. A study found that Arizona immigrants generate $2.4 billion in taxes while the state spends $1.4 billion on education, health care, law enforcement, on immigrants. In Florida, another state heavily in the, this, the center of all this, in Florida, another study found that the average immigrant paid almost $1,500 more in taxes than they received in public benefits. There's many voices right now that are expressing concern. They're saying it almost looks as though there's a financial incentive not to fix this, especially at the federal level. That's what some people are saying. Let me give you one more example. This one involves detention facilities. This is disturbing. More than half of these 34,000 detention beds, specifically for asylum seekers, are operated by private companies, which the federal government contracts at an average cost of $159 per person per day. These companies naturally have a strong profit incentive to see more individuals detained. The, lar the three largest companies within the private prison industry have spent, look at this, collectively more than how much in lobbying and campaign. There's big money here. There's big money here. And look at this. Companies further maximize their profits. I don't even know how this is legal, this next piece. Companies further maximize their profits by relying upon, relying upon detainees to perform basic operational functions within detention facilities, such as cleaning and serving meals at the pay of how much per day? A dollar per day. While technically not mandatory, many detainees feel compelled to volunteer because the facilities require them to purchase items such as pillow, pillows, ibuprofen, telephone cards to speak to their relatives or to an attorney, often at exorbitant prices. My point isn't to further flatten things by saying this is how it is everywhere. 
I'm just trying to say it is complicated. It is complicated. This is the broken world that the conversations that we've been having have brought us to. This is the world that we're in right now. The way people are talking has brought us here. And that brings us then to number three. Imagine a world, imagine a world, imagine the world we could create if we engage in conversations that are what? Helpful. Imagine that. Imagine if we tried to get on the solution side. Can you just, how crazy would that be? In January, we're going to do a series on blame. Why are we going to do a series on blame? Because what was the, one of the first things that happened when sin came into the world? Adam blamed who? Eve. Eve blamed who? The snake. They started blaming each other. They just started blaming each other. That's what happens when sin enters the world. Can you imagine what would happen if we could do a three-year ban on blame? Wouldn't that be fun? Especially right now going into this political season, three-year ban on blame. You blame someone else, you're out. You're out of the race. If you don't have solutions, then I'm serious. I am serious about this. Three-year ban on blame. No amens. Amen. Three-year ban on blame. Oh, my goodness. Another person I spoke to this summer, my friend Wendy, she moved her entire family. You talk about action. She moved her entire family from Minnesota to El Paso so she and her family could engage, engage in this important work. They've been there a long time, long time, longer than our church has been a church. Wendy's been on the front line for all these years and she is losing her patience when it comes to people who are just all talk. When it comes to idealists. Someone recently invited her to join one of her protests and she said this. Please don't tweet this. She said, F Trump is not a strategy. That's what she said. It's not a strategy. She she says this to people. She says, What's your idea? What's your idea? What's your idea? There's a place to write this in your notes. Your actions, your actions will amplify or invalidate your words. Your actions will amplify or invalidate your words. We say this a lot around here, something like this. Pointing out problems is even easier than cow hunting, right? Pointing out problems is easy, easy. We've seen the kind of world that's created as we take this easy path. We see the kind of world that happens when we use disrespectful language. That's easy. We've seen the kind of world that happens when we flatten the truth. We pass along misleading statements or we don't bring in multiple perspectives. We've seen what happens when we spend more time blaming than fixing. Imagine the world we could create if we used respectful language, we made accurate statements, and we offered helpful ideas. In the book of John, sandwiched between in the beginning and the word became flesh, we find this, the true light. This is in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. My last back point on your series and sheet was going to be, have you ever received Christ? If you were playing, if you were playing fill in the blank, you might have already filled that in. I don't want you to write that. I don't want you to write that. I would encourage you to write this. Have you received him? 
Have you received him? The reason I want to do that is because I don't want to just flatten Christ. What did, what did John say about this one who is coming? This one, right? Be, be, be sandwiched between the, in the beginning and the word became flesh. Think of what it said about him. This is the one that we're receiving. We're receiving the one through whom all things were made. Whoa. That's who we can receive. That's the invitation. We can receive the one through whom all things were made. We can receive, John says, the light that shines in the darkness. That's rich. We can receive him. That's the invitation. We're to receive the one that John later refers to as the way, the truth, the life. There's an there's a invitation to receive him. This is complicated. And if you just look at the stats and focus your attention on how broken this is, you could lose hope. You could lose hope. But there is a God who brings light into the darkness. There is a God who brings order from chaos. And his words still bring life and hope and healing. Amen. And the good news is we don't have to figure this out on our own. We can receive who? Him. We can receive him. We can receive his spirit. We can receive his life. We can receive him. Amen.